0: Turn in Scripture this evening to Isaiah chapters 8 and 9. We take a break from our series on James to have a few sermons uh, in this Christmas season that uh, focus on the coming of Jesus and His birth. We begin that series, uh, a short series then, of three sermons. We look tonight at Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. But we read, we start our reading at Isaiah 8 verse 9. Isaiah 8 verse 9. This is the prophet speaking to the wicked people in the land. Associate yourselves, O ye people... And ye shall be broken in pieces, and give ear, all ye of far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. It's, even, it's probably even better to understand these verses as referring to the ten tribes of Israel and Syria as they plotted to attack Judah and Jerusalem. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught, to nothing. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. Literally, for Emmanuel. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying... Say ye not a confederacy. So now Isaiah is instructed to say to the people of Judah, a confederacy, a conspiracy, to all them to whom this people shall say, a confederacy. So God says, sorry, God says to Isaiah, don't say a conspiracy to all those to whom this people shall say, A conspiracy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Now this word is not only to Isaiah, but to God's people in the land. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. Set him apart, sanctify, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he shall be for a sanctuary but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin, for a trap, and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. And when they shall say unto you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. Should not a people seek unto their God? For the living to the dead? Why go to the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the prophets, uh, to, to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And they shall pass through hardly bestead, that is, imperiled or oppressed and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. That is, look upward in complete desperation. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. And now a transition. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and, and perhaps the better translation is to remove the word not. Thou hast multiplied the nation and increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. As in the day of Midian, right, the days of Gideon. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. The idea there, I think, is every, every boot of the warrior and every garment that is rolled in blood shall be fuel for fire and shall become a burning right? Completely destroyed. Those, those garments of warfare. There won't be that warfare. There will be peace. And now the words of the text. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace." Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So, a word of darkness and and. and Judgment in the first half of what we read, and then the second half, a word of hope climaxing in verses 6 and 7. Let's just read verse 6 again for this evening's consideration. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, before I sat down to write this sermon, I have to say that part of what I did was go to YouTube and listen to that part of Handel's Messiah that covers this verse. I think if you know Handel's Messiah at all, it might even be hard for you to read these verses without letting that music shape how you intonate the words of this verse. One thing that I really like about that piece of Handel's Messiah is that it has a way of getting me excited. Excited about my Savior, excited about worship, and excited about this passage. I'm excited to preach on this passage, and I hope that you are excited as well to work through this passage with me in this Christmas season. And one thing that I would emphasize is this. We should be excited to worship Perhaps especially in this Christmas season, but really all the time. But in this Christmas season, Christmas is a happy season. And even when we have hard circumstances or we have reasons for discouragement, nevertheless, we should also be full of joy. Because the Christmas season is all about the gospel. The Christmas season is all about God fulfilling His promises of salvation. And that's good news beloved. The Savior has come. The promised Messiah, the hope of God's people, the only one who could save his people from their sin and misery has come. He's come, beloved, and he's right there in the manger as a little babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. Rejoice, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just having salvation. The coming of Jesus, the king in the manger, is reason for great joy. And that's certainly also the tone here in Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And if you really take in the verses that lead up to the text for tonight, you'll see that these verses, the text this evening, really serves as the climax to all that that is coming before it. This text is a triumphant declaration of the sure hope and confidence that comes from the coming of the promised Savior. It's a reason for God's people, even in the midst of dark times, to rejoice. Well, we plan to have three sermons as we work through verses 6 and 7. Tonight, we're going to consider the first two names given to the Messiah in verse 6. Wonderful Counselor. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll look at the next two names, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and then Christmas morning, we'll look at that last name, the Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, that's the theme for this evening. First, we look at that name Wonderful, second, the name Counselor, and then third, the joyful reality that He has given to us. Now, before we really begin, I want to make just a note about these two words, Wonderful Counselor. In the King James Version, there's a comma between these two words, Wonderful Counselor. So the King James understands these two words as two different names. Probably the more common way that these words are handled today is to put them together as one name, Wonderful Counselor. So that there's kind of a a parallelism, right? Two words for, for every name, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, both ways of how to put the comma or take it out, both ways are legitimate. In this sermon this evening, I'm going to treat these names first uh, like this. First, the word wonderful, the name wonderful, and then all by itself, and then we're going to look at the name wonderful counselor. So we'll look at both words this evening. First, the name wonderful, and his name shall be called wonderful. That word wonderful could also be translated simply by the word wonder. That's His name. His name is wonder. Evidently, this word is only ever used in the Old Testament in connection with God. And usually when this word is, referred, is used, it's referring to God's saving acts. It's referring to the wonderful acts that God performs on behalf of His people. This word wonder refers to things that are unusual, that are beyond human capability, things that awaken within us a sense of awe and astonishment and amazement. And again, these things are wonderful, not just because they are something miraculous in and of themselves, but because they, at the same time as they are miraculous, they show us God's love for His people in an amazing way. For just a few different references, consider how this word is used in in these verses of Scripture. In Exodus 15, verse 11, Moses uses this word when he sings about how God delivers Israel from Egypt. God has just destroyed the whole land of Egypt. He's brought the people through the Red Sea on dry ground. He's just drowned the hosts of Pharaoh's army. And Moses sings and he says, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee? Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. That's the word here. In First Chronicles chapter 16, David is bringing the ark to Jerusalem and he's celebrating with the people. And he writes there a song of thanksgiving to the Lord. And in the song, David writes... Give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Sing unto Him. Sing psalms unto Him. Talk ye of all His wondrous works. In Psalm 105, verse 2, those exact same words are used. In Psalm 107, verse 21, we read, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and His wonderful works to the children of men. And back in Psalm 77 which we already sang tonight, Asaph is struggling in his spiritual life. And what does he say? He says, I will remember what God has done for me. And he says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. And then three verses later, he says, thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. So that's the word wonder. It refers to the glorious, mighty things that God does for his people, saving them. But now, here in Isaiah 9, verse 6, what is somewhat unique is that the passage is not talking, strictly speaking, about God's works, but the passage is talking here about a person, a child, a son. And the passage doesn't just say that the birth of this son is wonderful. That the birth of this child is amazing. But the passage says, his name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. And that's interesting because as we know, in the Bible, names mean something. Names are revelatory. Especially when it comes to the names of God. We may not take God's name in vain. And when we pray, we pray that God's name be hallowed because the simple truth is... God is his names. God's names are his revelation to us of who he is. A name of God is is kind of a window for us into who God is. And that's just the case here as well. That's the significance of these names in Isaiah 9, verse 6. It's not just that these are his names, like a name that a parent gives his child or her child, as if it's a label. But this is his name because this is who he is. This child is wonderful. This child is the wonderful one. This child is the wonder of God. This child is the wonderful act of God in saving his people. This child is a miracle of God. Or to use the expression that we use at Christmas time, he is the wonder of wonders. He's the greatest wonder, the greatest miracle of all. He is wonderful. And why is that the case? It's the case because this child, this son that is given, is God in the flesh. And that's the greatest wonder of all, beloved. That's the wonder of wonders. God himself Come in our human flesh. The incarnation. As the Catechism students remember that word, incarnation. Come in the flesh. God, come in the flesh. Or to use the language from just two chapters earlier, Isaiah 7 verse 14, He is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's amazing, beloved. That is the wonder of wonders. God, the Eternal One, entering into his creation of time. God, the Infinite One, taking upon himself a limited, finite human body and soul. God, the Creator, who dwells above time and space and above matter. God, who is pure spirit. God, who is love. Who is love. Who is mercy who is justice, who is infinitely above us in glory and honor, and he comes into our world in our flesh as a babe. The shepherd becomes a sheep of the flock. The potter, sitting at his wheel, working with the clay, the potter becomes clay. He who speaks from the heavens, he makes the earth to shake with the power of his voice. He causes the cedar of Lebanon to break. He becomes a baby in a manger who's crying out for his mother's milk. He who is the word, by whom all things were made, is born into poverty, wrapped in swaddling clothes. He who is so great that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, he becomes a pinprick, a, a, a pinprick in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he becomes a man through supernatural conception. And yet, it's through the same ordinary process of birth that you and I all experienced when we were born into this world. He who is God becomes a man who suffers and who dies, who who becomes weak and tired and hungry, and who will even go through the unspeakable, unfathomable agonies of hell as a man. That's a wonder, beloved. The one who is equal with God, the second person of the Trinity, and he entered into our world, took upon himself the form of a man, and walked among us. That's a wonder, beloved. This child that shall be born unto us, the son that is given, is wonderful. His name is wonderful because he is the wonder of wonders. Again, just consider, God is the God who performs many wonderful works. The essential students this past week started looking at God's work of creation, right? Right? God spoke the things that were not as though they were. His work of creation is a marvel. One of the afternoon catechism classes looked at the history of Moses receiving the law at Mount Sinai. Remember there we read Exodus chapter 19 and we considered what it must have been like to be at the foot of Mount Sinai hearing the very voice of God as He spoke those Ten Commandments from the midst of the smoke and the fire and the sound of the trumpet and an earthquake. He's the God of the wonder. Another catechism class in the afternoon this past week looked at the parting of the Jordan River. And the conquest of the land of Canaan, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. God caused the sun to stand still in the sky for a whole day. How does that work, beloved? How does that work? Causing the sun, with what we know today, causing the sun to stand still. How does that work? It's a marvel. These are wonders. These are things that capture our amazement they utterly astonish us. But the point is this what we celebrate at Christmas time, what we celebrate in the birth of the Messiah, is nothing less than the wonder of all wonders. That's why his name is wonderful. He is the wonder of God. Again, to, to see this, just consider how the angels responded when they witnessed the birth of Jesus in that manger in Bethlehem. And the angel came to the shepherds watching their flocks by night. And the angel told them the news. Remember what happened, children? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. This is how all these promises are being fulfilled. This is how God is going to save his people through this child who is God who is God, come now in the flesh. And the angels are amazed at the wonder of it. And the shepherds, they go and worship the baby, and the angels, they worship the baby too. That's not written in the Bible, but of course they do. They worship Jesus. But then think also about what happens after Jesus' earthly ministry, when He ascends into heaven, and what the reaction of the angels was at that point as well, right? Here's a new thing. Here is God in the flesh. We can see Him with our own eyes, glorified body and soul, entering into heaven in a glorified human nature. And the angels must have been absolutely stupefied and exulting with joy and full of wonder as they look upon Him, as He makes His way and He approaches the throne of the triune God. And he's given that place of honor at the right hand of God, sitting on the throne. What would the angels have said? His name is wonderful. Because he is the wonder of wonders. In him is really expressed all of God's saving power and love towards his people. His name is wonderful. Well, if we wanted to add even something more to our consideration, we can add this. His name is wonderful also because of this. Not just that He is God come in the flesh. We've just looked at that. But He is wonderful because He is God come in the flesh to save a sinful, lowly, wicked people. We probably have to use all three sermons to emphasize this point. But that adds certainly to the wonder of it all, doesn't it? He's not just God in the flesh. But He's God come in the flesh for the express purpose of saving a sinful people from their sins. Here I want to give you a little bit of the historical context in which this verse is found. Because if we know the context here, that's going to amplify what a wonder this child is. Not just a wonder of God's power, but a wonder of God's grace to His people. At this time in Judah's history, things are very dark. At this particular time, King Ahaz is sitting on the throne. He's of the line of David. He's supposed to be a type and and a shadow of the promised son who is to come, but he's the exact opposite. He's a man who's wholly given to sin, Perhaps after his wicked grandson, Manasseh, he's the worst king that the kingdom of Judah had. He was the king who worshipped Molech, who offered his children to the fire. He was the king who promoted all kinds of wicked things to take place in the valley of Hinnom, or a valley of Henna, at the base of the city of Jerusalem in that valley. Remember Gehenna, the word for hell? because of what he did, that valley became a picture of hell, a place of darkness. King Ahaz is the one who cut in pieces the vessel, vessels of the temple. He, he barred shut the doors of the temple so that God's people couldn't worship. And instead of using the altar of burnt offering that God had supplied at the temple, he's the one who, who told his priest to make a new altar patterned after the altar of the Assyrians. And that altar was put in the court, and sacrifices were made to the idol gods of the Assyrians, right there in the temple. These were extremely dark days, and there's more that could be said. And when Israel, the the ten tribes of Israel and Syria, made an alliance to attack Judah and destroy Jerusalem, King Ahaz, instead of Submitting to the Lord's instruction by the word of Isaiah and trusting the Lord, he prayed to the king of Assyria that the king of Assyria might help him. Besides King Ahaz, the vast majority of the people in the land of Judah were very wicked. We read in chapter 3 that the people were as bold in their sins as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were bold in their sins. They oppressed the poor and the helpless. They gave themselves over to drunkenness. The men were wicked leaders. The women were haughty and behaving scandalously. The people were friends with wicked people. There was witchcraft, black magic, and devil worship. The people were dishonest in their dealings. In a word, they were full of hypocrisy. The land was overflowing with idols. Enemy lands were oppressing them. And the people were being driven to darkness. Now, can you imagine being one of God's true children in these circumstances? how how wearisome it must have been, even how fearful and discouraging it must have been because they knew God wouldn't put up with this hypocrisy. They knew judgment was coming. And yet it's exactly in the light of those circumstances, starting in Isaiah 9 verse 2, that God says, but there is hope. There is hope for my people. Verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. What is that light? It's the light of God. It's the light of Jesus. Jesus, who is the light of the world. This is the promise of the coming Messiah. Verse 3 says that instead of complete ruin and judgment upon the people, there is coming a day when God will cause His people, His chosen people, to be full of joy. To have the kind of joy that you have after harvest time when the cart's rolling into town with the bounties of the harvest. The kind of joy you have when you get to uh, enjoy the spoils of warfare after victory. God will bring joy to his people once again, this word says, because God will bring peace to his people, he will crush the head of their enemy. He will cast off the yoke that was burdening his people, and he will give them victory over their enemies. And how will all this come to pass? Well, that's where verse 6 begins. For, this is the reason for all this joy and peace. There will be joy. There will be a great light that shines upon my people. I will deliver them from their enemies and their sorrow and their fears and this warfare for... For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And who will this child be? He will be the child whose name is wonderful. Because he will be the wonder of wonders. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. He will be the son of righteousness who rises with healing and life and peace and liberty in his wings. He will be your redemption, people of God. And so the point right now is this. His name is wonderful, first of all, because he's God in the flesh. We covered that. He's the wonder of wonders. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. But his name is wonderful also because he's given to us while we are in such sad and miserable circumstances, totally undeserving of God's goodness, totally deserving to be forsaken. And yet God is Jehovah. He does not change. He remembers His promises, and He sends this child in His unspeakable, His wonderful love and grace to His people. This child is the Holy One, who will accomplish our salvation, who will not only preach the glad tidings of salvation, but who will fulfill the good news of salvation through his own life and his suffering and his death and his resurrection. He will be that perfect mediator. His name is wonderful. Well, beloved, the question for us this evening is this. Is he wonderful to us? His name is wonderful. He is the wonder of wonders. But is he wonderful to us? Right? In your own estimation of him, how you're living, by the way you behave yourselves, is he wonderful to you? Or would I rather enjoy the darkness a little bit more and shade myself from him who is the light of the world? Maybe the question really is this. Do I really understand who he is, as wonderful. Because that's the issue. If I know him as wonderful, then I'm drawn to him. Then I rejoice in him, and then I live unto him. But if I continue to serve idols, walk in evil ways, then I'm like King Ahaz and and the vast majority of Judah. I don't understand who he is as wonderful, and I don't really care about him either. Oh, beloved, for us who are Christians, this is what we rejoice in at Christmas. The birth of the one whose name is wonderful. He is wonderful. He is wonderful to me. I love him. I stand amazed at who he is. And I stand amazed at the unspeakable grace that he has shown in being born for me and for my salvation. His grace is wonderful. His love is wonderful. His holiness is wonderful. His righteousness is wonderful. He is wonderful. It is His name that I celebrate in this season. It is His name that I worship in this Christmas season. His name is wonderful. Well, to move on, the text says not only is His name wonderful, but His name is also counselor. And again, That is His name because that is who He is. This is His name. He is this. He is Counselor. And we can say without contradiction, He is a wonderful Counselor. The word Counselor in verse 6 is pretty straightforward. A Counselor is an advisor. A Counselor is one who has wisdom and who gives good instruction and direction. And if we remember that this child that we are talking about in the passage has the government on his shoulders, then we're talking here about one who is a king, one who is a ruler. And what a ruler needs above all is, in a certain sense, the wisdom to rule well. Even you children remember when King Solomon was becoming king and God came unto him right in the night and God said, Solomon, ask me for anything and I will give it to you. And Solomon said, Lord, I need wisdom. I need wisdom to govern and to counsel, to counsel this, thy so great a people. A king needs wisdom to rule well. He needs wisdom to administer the affairs of his kingdom. He needs wisdom to counsel and instruct and rule and direct the citizens of his kingdom. In fact, in Micah 4 verse 9, the word king and the word counselor are synonymous. This is how closely connected these two ideas are. A king is a counselor. Again, just think of all the counseling that King Solomon was doing, right? When all the difficult cases were being brought to him, he was was the judge. He was the counselor. That's the idea of the word counselor. To give just a few other passages of Scripture to help us shape our thoughts regarding this word, consider these verses. And actually, if you have your Bible open, you could just turn the page to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, where you have another prophecy about the coming of Christ. And notice what we read in those first two verses of Isaiah 11. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots." And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Notice especially that word counsel. And there you see what the word counsel involves. Being endowed with great wisdom and understanding and knowledge. A counselor is one who has deep truths That are hidden inside. And then if you would keep reading Isaiah 11, it becomes clear that the person Isaiah is talking about here is a king. He's a king who has the spirit of counsel, of wisdom, of knowledge. Psalm 119 verse 24, the psalmist says, Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors child of God, goes to God's Word for wisdom, for direction and instruction. That's, that's partly what devotions are for. That's what preaching is for, that we might receive counsel. We need counselors, beloved. It's good for us to be surrounded by good and faithful counselors, right? That proverb, in the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. A king in the Old Testament usually had many counselors, right? Uh, Who was it? Uh, Rehoboam who had his older counselors and then he also had his younger friends who served as counselors for him. But now here with this passage and now as we think about God, we need to recognize that God himself has no need of counselors. In Isaiah 40 verse 12, we read, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel?" And who instructed Him and taught Him in the path of judgment and taught Him knowledge and showed to Him the way of understanding. Here you see what a counselor is and what a counselor does. But God does not have any need of a counselor. Also in the well-known passage of Romans 11, verses 33 through 36, we read, O the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been His counselor? Right? Who has counseled God? For of Him are all things, and through Him are all things, and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Well, that's the word counselor. And now in this passage before us, we see that this is the name of this child that is given. His name is Counselor. This is who He is. And again, the idea is He is the incarnate one. He is God come in the flesh. To use the language of Colossians, in Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He knows how to direct His people. He knows how to rule with wisdom. What a blessing for the people under his rule to have a king who has no need of counselors because he himself is the counselor. Especially when you consider the days of Isaiah, right? And the foolishness of King Ahaz. What a relief. What a comfort to God's people to hear that this king who is coming, this savior would be the perfect counselor. The one endowed with all wisdom and knowledge. What a comfort. That's what we need. He's the king who knows his people's struggles, who knows his people's challenges, and who knows just what guidance and instruction to give them. And to go a little further, we may emphasize, in Jesus you have all the characteristics of the perfect counselor. Not only is Jesus filled with perfect wisdom and knowledge, but there's this too. Jesus is the perfect listener. That's what we want in a counselor, too, isn't it? Maybe now we think of the of the more common way that we use the word counselor today. You you want someone who listens well. And and who doesn't just even listen, but who gets you, right? Who understands so that even when you don't have the words to express what you're feeling or what you're going through, your counselor understands and gets it. That's who Jesus is. He's your counselor. He's the perfect teacher. As counselor, he, he has to listen and then, and then give instruction and direction. And, and he knows exactly what instruction to give and also how to give it. He knows how we learn best. And he knows exactly how to teach us individually. In addition, Jesus is the perfectly sympathetic counselor. He's not only the one perfect in knowledge, but he's the one, and he's not only the one who listens, but he's the one who truly cares. He's the kind of king who's not serving for his own purposes as he rules and directs his people, maybe like an evil king, shearing the sheep for his own gain. No, this king is the kind of king who wants his people to enjoy salvation who wants his people to be happy and blessed. He cares for and he loves his people. His name is Counselor. This is what defines his character and his being. He is the perfectly wise ruler of his people. What a blessing, beloved. What comfort. But now, just as we had asked the question, is Jesus wonderful to me, so it's suitable to ask ourselves the question, is Jesus my counselor. What I mean is this. Do we actually seek his wisdom and his counsel? Do we go to his word? Or, or maybe do we do otherwise like they were doing in Isaiah's day? Going to those with familiar spirits. Going to the wizards, that peep and that mutter. Is Jesus the one I look to whose, whose word I follow? We know In addition to that question, we need to ask, are we actually trusting his counsel and and following his instruction? I know what his word says. I know what the king is telling me to do. I know he's my counselor. Am I doing it? Or maybe I'm just struggling with dead orthodoxy, right? I say I'm a citizen of the kingdom, but I don't actually care what the king says, I say he's my Savior. I want to go to heaven after all, but he's not my counselor whose word I follow. He's not my King. Beloved, we know the truth. If he's not my counselor, he's not my Savior because this is his name. It's an inseparable part of his very being and character. He, he is counselor. What do God's people say at Christmas time? They say, Jesus, you are my king, and as my king, your word is my counselor. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Thy law is my delight. Thou, through thy commandments, hast made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients. Because I keep thy precepts. That's what we are saying when we rejoice in this name. Counselor. Jesus is my wonderful counselor. And then what can we also do? We can go to him and we can say, Guide me, Lord Jesus. Guide me. You know the way I need to take. You know even the earthly means that I need to make use of. And, and, and how I need to walk. You know how to rule me, how to direct me. Of myself, I don't know the way. I'm so often like the sheep going astray in the way of folly. Give me wisdom, Lord. Give me instruction. Give me counsel. Guide me by thy counsel through my earthly way. And cause me to know and be assured of who you are as my counselor indeed. So that I rejoice in this reality. Well, what's the good news of the passage, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ? The good news is this Jesus has been given to us. He whose name is wonderful. He whose name is counselor. He is ours, right? We, we looked at it this morning through faith. We've been engrafted into him and now he is ours. He's he's my counselor. He's my wonderful counselor. He is the possession of all who put their faith in him. He's wonderful in every way. And he's mine. He's my counselor. He is my king. And he saves me all the way. All the way through. He saves me. He guides me day by day. That's what we're celebrating in this Christmas season. Let us rejoice, beloved. Let us us shout for joy at the wonder and fullness of our salvation. And as the angel said, let all the glory, let the maximum glory be given to God. Glory to God in the maximum. God who has given Jesus to be these things unto us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for wonderful, we thank Thee for counselor, we thank Thee for Jesus, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Cause us to know Him more, to see who He is for us and unto us, and to rest in Him, to make use of Him to exult in Him and rejoice in Him. We thank Thee for this passage. We thank Thee for the wonder of Thy grace. May we know it ourselves. And may it shape us and our thoughts and our lives in this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.